The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. This evening our text verse once again is Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. And our subject, again, is church history. And according to this verse that was spoken by Jesus, the history of the church would be a very long one. Uh, In the founding of the church, Christ is the solid rock upon which the church is founded. And the apostles are the first building blocks of that foundation. So that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock... And there Jesus means himself, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now those verses tell us that the New Testament teaches the perpetuity of the church, because Christ must receive glory... And in the New Testament age, the Word of God tells us that the way that he will receive his glory is through the church. And so in all ages, he will receive his glory. And that tells us that there is a church today that is still holding on to those same doctrines that was taught by Jesus to his apostles. Now, in our last lesson, we went back to the very beginning of the church that, as it was begun in Christ, by Christ in the first century. And as I've mentioned, the first members of that church were, were the apostles. They were the charter members of it. Uh, they were called by Christ in Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus took those men and he began to teach them and to give them the doctrines that would magnify the wonderful work that he's done in the redemption of man. And so wherever Christ is preached in, in truth and lifted up in truth, then he will be glorified. And that is the first function of the Lord's church. It is to glorify Christ. And so we're very concerned that we preach the truth, and we know that if we are preaching it, that we will be lifting up and glorifying Christ. Uh, That's why we're we're not content uh, to be members of a church that doesn't very strongly emphasize the reading of the Bible, the Word of God, because that is the truth that God has given us, and that is what will glorify Him. And so it will always be our method to teach from God's Word. Well, how do we keep the the glory of Christ alive for another generation? How how do we keep that going? Well, the Bible tells us that what we do, of course, is to uh, speak to people, to evangelize them, give them, them the gospel of Christ, talk to the lost, and then out of this group of people that we speak to, Christ will call out a people for His name, And that goes on from one generation to the next, and so the church continues in every generation. Well, backing up to get uh, our bearings a little bit, our first look at church history, uh, the area that we talked about last week was the apostolic age. This is the uh, first century, which is the era of the apostles, and it was through them that, that the church began to branch out from Jerusalem and then to go into other places of the world. Uh, At first, the church was stuck in Jerusalem. It really wasn't going anywhere very fast until persecution came. And the church was driven out of its comfort zone. 
And the, the people that were in Jerusalem began to leave there, and they took the gospel with them to all these other places where they went. And I know that it must have been very difficult for the first church to understand this, or that early church to understand, that persecution was actually in the plan of God. That that was the way that he would get the people to move out and begin to preach to people. Well, the Apostle Paul, some 30 years later, after being a persecutor and then uh, being persecuted himself, wrote to the Philippian church and he said, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me. And there Paul's talking about being in prison because that's where he wrote this letter from. He says, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. And so according to what Paul says in that verse, persecution is ordained by God. That, that's one of God's method to get us to completely to depend upon him. And so it was during this time, during the apostolic age, that the first missionaries were sent out from the church. Uh, Saul was converted to become the Apostle Paul, and then this great missionary movement began. And it was also during that time that the center of the church moved out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem began to fall out of prominence, and it wasn't too many years, well, of course, 70 A.D., that Jerusalem was destroyed. And so the, the center of the church moved to Antioch in Syria, and that's where... Of course, Christians were first, uh, people were first called Christians. That was in Antioch. And at first, the church was predominantly Jewish, but Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church at Antioch, and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, they went out to preach. And the first thing that they would do is they would go to the Jews and they would preach to them. But for the most part, the Jews rejected it. And so he and Barnabas said, Now we must turn to the Gentiles. And when that happened, a predominantly Jewish church became a predominantly Gentile church. Now in Acts chapter 13, we, we find here one of the places where a line is drawn. And the Apostle Paul and Barnabas spoke to the Jews there. And it says, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, that is to you Jews, but seeing that you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now what Paul did, he vigorously pursued conversion of his own people. He always maintained a heart of love and compassion for the Jews, but it's plain that they were hardened to the gospel and they rejected it. And so that rejection was the impetus for the change of the makeup of the church. This is what Paul wrote in Romans. He said, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Again, speaking of Jews, God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. So this was a period of transition. That predominantly Jewish church became a predominantly Gentile church, and it still is today. And we needn't expect that it's ever going to change, at least not in this time, because the Bible never gives us any indication that there will be a wholesale turning of the Jews to Christ again. As I said, not in this age. But when Christ comes back and he takes uh, the church out of the world, 
then there's going to be a great revival among the Jewish people. That'll be in the tribulation. And uh, this will be a time of preparing for the millennial kingdom of Christ to come when Israel will be a dominant, will be the dominant nation within that kingdom. And so there will be Jews that are turned to Christ then. But that's not going to happen in our time, not in the church time. Now, another thing that we talked about last week was the empowering of the church. And that's what came on the day of Pentecost. And that's when the church was active, became active with the Great Commission. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he told the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. And he said, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And so the Holy Spirit did come and he fell upon the church and he empowered this group of 120 disciples and those 120 disciples under the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit, they preached and the Bible says that they turned the world upside down. But then there was something else that happened in the first century. Satan escalated the persecution of the church, but persecution turned out to be counterproductive for him. Satan could not stamp out the church with persecution because the more persecution that came the more people that actually uh, began uh, began to believe in Christ and the church kept growing and so as another tactic in Satan's arsenal of his many wiles he started to sow seeds of apostasy if he couldn't kill the church from without then what he would do is kill it from within and still today the biggest problem that we have in the church is uh, is this apostasy. Persecution just does not work. Uh, Satan's not going to stop doing that because that is one of the ways that he hurts the people of God. But he actually uses apostasy as the greatest way to hinder the work of the church. And the way that Satan does that is explained by the Apostle Paul. He said that what Satan does is to transform himself into an angel of light. And he says that his ministers are also transformed into angels of light. And that's what we really are talking about this morning in the message. That, that you have these false prophets that claim that they speak for God. And they claim to be the angels of light. But they really aren't speaking for God. And so Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So during the apostolic age, there were various heresies that Satan brought into the church. He afflicted the church with him. Now, Satan is always bruising the heel. He's always busy at that. And he started out by by bringing in the heresy of Judaism in the church. Now, Judaism is legalism. It's legalism. And as difficult as legalism is, I mean, actually being saved by keeping commandments and keeping the law, as difficult as that is and impossible that it is, yet that is the preferred method of all people without Jesus Christ. They're all engaged in this great uh, effort in order to win their way to, the, to heaven by being good, by doing good things or think that they're doing good things. So Judaism, the legalism, that, that was an attack that came into the church. And then there was paganism. And 
the tendency was to mix Christianity with pagan practices. And then following upon that, there was the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is mysticism, and it's also an attack upon the deity of Christ. And so you have those three major heresies that began in the first century, and that's Judaism, paganism, and Gnosticism, and those have actually continued to plague the church for centuries. Well, from there, we need to move along, and we need to see what was going on in the next two to three hundred years after the apostles. And so we come to the next age, and this age is known as the Anti-Nicene Age, from 100 to 325 A.D. Now, let me explain for just a moment why it's called Anti-Nicene. And that's because in 325, there was a council that was held in modern-day Turkey... Uh, in Nicaea. At that time, it was known as Anatolia in Bithynia. And uh, the Anti-Nicene Age is the period before that council took place. Now, anti is a prefix that means before, preceding, predating. And uh, so we call this period that because this Anti-Nicene Conference or council makes a a division here. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about what that means at a later time. But there was a lot that was going on during this particular period. Uh, In the first part of it, there were, of course, people that knew the apostles. I mean, coming out of the first century into the second century, there were people that were actually still acquainted with the apostles. They, They had received their teaching from them. And so in that first part of the second century, the people at that time, the ones who who were teaching the people and been taught by the apostles, are called the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers are those who are actually acquaintances of the apostles. Now, the apostle John lived up near to the end of the first century, and there were many going into the second that had actually sat under the apostle John and received their instructions from him. These were men like Clement of Rome and Barnabas of Alexandria. And I don't know if you've heard of those names before, but I think surely you've probably heard of this one, and that is Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he became the pastor of the church at Smyrna. Polycarp was burned at the stake in 155. And it said that when he was burning or they attempted to burn him in that flame but the flames never touched him and so what they did was they reached through the flames and they actually stabbed him to death and then there are others uh, and you might know uh, might imagine this that the hijackers of christianity would take polycarp and claim him for their own the roman catholic church has declared him to be a saint while if he was here he would have declare them to be from Satan. That would be the difference there. And then there were people like Ignatius and Papias. Uh, They had direct contact with the apostles. Ignatius was also a student of John, and uh, he met his end by being fed to the lions in Rome. So I guess knowing John wasn't, that wasn't the best friend to have, probably. But we have some of the writings from them, and um, those writings have been preserved, and we know by looking at many of the things that they said that they hold or held to the same truths that have been taught to them by the apostles. Well, time goes on, and then when you get into the later part of the second century, 
then you get to people that didn't know the apostles. They'd never met them, and so they're receiving instructions now secondhand. It doesn't come from the apostles, but from the ones that the apostles had taught. And this, this second group of people, of men, are called the apologists. The apologists, and they are defenders of the faith. And these were men that saw the growing tide of apostasy. They saw the rising heresies that were coming into the Christian faith. They saw paganism as it was having its influence. They saw politics begin to make inroads into the church. And they saw this doctrinal shift, and they saw a doctrinal slide from what the apostles had taught. And so they preached very, very strongly against those changes, and they defended the church. Now, Jude said that we must earnestly contend for the faith. And that's what they did. And I want to read that to you from from Jude because we still have to do this today. Jude said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the same attacks that happened then are still happening to the church today. And so that tells us that the church has to be a militant church. We have to be a church that fights against all these different wiles of the devil. But unfortunately, the militant church has become the mousy church. And we're afraid to talk about errors and growing apostasy and all that's going wrong in Christianity today. You're just not going to find too many people that stand up against any of the heresy that goes on. And much of it is just let gone through without a word ever being said and accepting anything that anybody wants to teach. And so that's why it's so important that we preach from the Bible and we stick to the Bible because that is the only way that we're going to be able to tell who's teaching truth and who isn't. It's the only way that we have to filter out all of these heretics who want to destroy the church. Now some of the men of this particular time you've probably heard of, there's uh, Justin Martyr, and Theophilus, Aristides, Tertullian, among many others. And, and they were defenders of the faith when there were so many people, so many others that were compromising. Now, we can't make any claims of complete orthodoxy for any of these people, any more than we can any uh, of these ancient Christians, except the apostles, of course. We, we can't do that, but we do know this. They held on to those core doctrines of the faith that we spoke of earlier, and so we know that the church is perpetuated during that time. Now, lastly tonight, and uh, we're going to try to end up a little bit quickly if we can, I want to talk to you about the doctrinal errors of that period. Uh, there were changes that were happening, and these are not sudden overnight changes, but these are things that take a long period of years to, to finally work themselves out. And so you have gradual, gradual doctrinal shifts, not something that happens all at one time. And the first error that began to work its way through this period was an error about church polity. And when we talk about polity, what we're speaking of is the structure of the church, the organization of it, the government of the church. And this, this particular time there was a, a change in the way that the church was structured. 
And, and this first heresy that, that arose during that time is what we call ecclesiasticism. Uh, and you don't need to be afraid of that word. You, you see the first part of it. It's ecclesia or ecclesia, which is the New Testament word for church. And so when you have a division between, uh, when you have divisions in the church, when you have a separation between the clergy and the laity, that's the beginning of ecclesiasticism. Now, the, the, the clergy is me. You understand that? The clergy, or that's what they call me. The clergy is me and the laity is you. The clergy uh, is the pastor and the laity are the people that are in the pew. And when there comes a separation between the clergy and the laity or between me and you, that's when we have the beginnings of ecclesiasticism. And during this time, the gap between the two began to grow wider and wider. Uh, the pastors of the church grew more powerful. And so they began to separate themselves from the people and to become lords over the people. Now, the New Testament model for church polity is what we find that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 3. He said, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. And he says in Philippians 1, verse 27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so you see the words yoke fellow, and fellow laborers, and striving together. And that's the way it's supposed to work between you and me. We're supposed to work together in the church. Now, you might think that what Baptists did was to reject all of that separation that eventually grew into a hierarchical system. And, of course, we don't have all the, in the Baptist church, we don't have all the superstructure that exists in these others. But still, in, in independent Baptist churches... Uh, there are some that have held on to these distinctions and they still want to hold on to them. There are Baptist churches where pastors become nearly gods. And they're people that, they're, they're men who control every aspect of the church, sometimes reaching down into the, to the deepest private lives of the members. And so the pastor controls everything. And whenever you see a list of rules and you see pressure that's put on people, those are simply power plays that are meant to harness and control people. And so if I can control what you wear and I can control where you go and I can control who you associate with, then essentially I control you. And this is what you see happening in these early years. Pastors put themselves above the people. Now, you're going to have to give me a little latitude here because I want to vent for just a second. Uh, I have some things that are pet peeves for me. And one of those is what I call the platform squatters. And that's when you have the church and you have all these men that are lined up across the platform as if they are the holy ones of God and they're above other people. Now, what, what I'm saying here, I, I'm not trying to indict anyone in particular because I think that there are some very, very good churches and good men who do this and they have no intentions to be, you know, to put themselves above the people in that way. And I'll say that's probably true and they do it innocently, but I don't like the practice. I remember that when I came to Berean that, you remember we had these different chairs to sit in? 
And we had these little short pews. And we had two of those that were sitting up here. And we had, uh, I think there were four men at that time that sat on the platform. Two over here, two over there. And then when I came on staff to do music, uh, one of the guys sitting over here had to be moved over here. And sitting where you sit on the platform, you may not realize this, but that is a political thing. It can be a political thing. So the guy that gets moved over here, over there, didn't like that. And I took this seat over here. And these three guys over here, they got bunched up together. And I don't think they liked it very well either. <laughs> well, those men are all good men. Uh, Brother Dalton's one of those. They're all good men. And, and, but here's what happens. When you start to separate people and you start to put some people above other people in the church, then you start to get pride that comes into a person's heart. And pastors can do that, and they can think that they're better than the rest of the people. And so, and so uh, I think that, that there are churches that do that, and, and you might not think that, well, that's such a big thing, but, but this separation of the people is what leads to this very problem of ecclesiasticism. And so this is why, if you wonder about this, this is why for several years that you don't see me sitting on the platform except for when I come up to preach or just before I come up to preach. And it's a simple reason. I'd rather sit with you than I would with them. And, and I, I think, that's, uh, I think that's, that's more appropriate for me to be a part of a congregation because I'm not any different from you. Now, what I'm not saying here is that you should not... I'm not saying don't respect the pastor and the leadership because you should. You should respect them. But let's not... Let's not Give due, give honor and do where it's not deserved. Uh, what I don't want to do is take any honor away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I honestly do believe that when I became pastor of the church, that my leadership style bothered some people. They weren't used to this. They were, I mean, you know, those of you that were here, you know that people around here were used to being told what to do. I mean, you're always told what to do, and you make the moves that you're supposed to make. And so when I started uh, pastoring the church, some people left for other reasons, but I know that this is part of it, that when you have somebody that's always told you what to do, then you don't know what to do if they don't tell you what to do. And so you go find somebody, you go find another church and another pastor who will tell you what to do. Well, that's not my style, you know that. And, 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 but going on from there, and that little bit of venting that I just did, th this is what Peter has to say about the elders of the church, or what he said to the elders of the church. He said, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And folks, this is what we all are. We are all under the chief shepherd. Every one of us is under the chief shepherd, and I don't want any of the recognition that belongs to him going to me. So there was this separation, and gradually that developed into what is now known as the papal system. The local pastor uh, had power, and then he got together with pastors of other local churches, and then through their fellowship and their cooperation, they formed an organization outside of the local church. And an organization needs somebody to organize. And so there was a bureaucracy that was formed. 
And they decided that what we really need then is someone to control or to be over and to organize for us. And so the pastors appointed for themselves a regional bishop. And because there are, there's more than one region, they had to appoint another regional bishop over another region. And then the regional bishops got together and decided, we need somebody over us to organize us. And so another bishop was appointed over them. And that thing just kept growing and growing and growing until you have a separation between the top-tier echelon of what's called the church and you poor little people that are sitting there in the pew. No longer is there any power, no longer is there any cooperation in this sense in church polity by the person who sits in the pew. And so now you have this whole superstructure that's over the local church to which the local church must answer. And the government of the church then gets transferred out of the local assembly and now you have a super authority that's over it all. Protestant churches have that system Of course, the Roman Catholics have the system, and this is why in these churches, when it comes time to choose a pastor, the local church has no authority over it. But they get sent a pastor from somewhere off, someplace else, and they're appointed to be over that church. The the church does not get to choose them. Well, that's the system that eventually grew into popery, where the pope has authority over everybody. Now, as Lord Acton said... Power, he said, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And in that little saying right there, you can pigeonhole the popes of Rome. The simplicity of local church government was supplanted by this complicated hierarchical system. And that gave rise to what's now known as the universal church. And that's what the word Catholic means. It means universal. And I think it's safe to say that the New Testament knows nothing at all about a universal church. Now, there's an interesting scripture on this. Uh, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. And many people believe that this scripture alludes to this system in the beginning of it. And this is the letter that was written to the church at Pergamos, and Jesus is speaking here. And so you might want to turn to that, Revelation chapter 2, and let's look at what Jesus had to say at the church of Pergamos. Revelation 2, beginning in verse number 13. He says to them, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate." Now, there are many people who believe that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is ecclesiasticism. C.I. Schofield writes, and, and if you have a Schofield reference Bible, you can see a summary of this particular statement at the bottom of page 1332. And he makes this comment about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He says, it is the doctrine that God has instituted an order of clergy or priest as distinguished from the laity. The word is formed from two Greek words, Nico, conqueror or overcomer, and Laos, the people. The New Testament knows nothing of a clergyman 
still less of a priest, except as all sons of God in this dispensation are royal priesthood. In the apostolic church, there were offices, elders or bishops, and deacons and gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, Ephesians 4.11. These might or might not be elders or deacons, but late in the apostolic period, there emerged a disposition to arrogate to elders alone authority to administer ordinances and generally to constitute themselves a class between God and the people. They were the Nicolaitans. And so you see this hierarchy that's building in the early years. Churches start grouping together in a new way, and they kept moving further away from the New Testament model. Now they've changed the authority of pastors and given them a different authority. And the shift comes in local church government to a universal church government. Well, one thing leads to another, And with the rise of pastoral authority came the second inevitable heresy, and that is sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism. Now, sacerdotalism is is a shift from the believer's direct relationship to Christ to a system where a priest has to function as an intermediary, intermediary between the believer and God. Now, that is actually a Judaistic system. It's also a paganistic system, and that's not the New Testament model. The New Testament model is what Schofield alluded to uh, when Peter called it a priesthood of believers. Peter said, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now there Peter is writing to the entire church, and the royal priesthood is the Bible's position, and that's our position. That means that each of us, not me, not just the pastor, but each of us is a priest of God. That all of us can go directly to God. There's no one who can prevent us from doing that. And there's no one who's authorized to be our representative to God. We have one great high priest. And that's Jesus Christ himself. He is our pontiff maxim. Now as you know, the Roman Catholic Church has stolen that title away from Christ. And they've given it to the Pope. And under the Pope, there are various other priests... Cardinals and archbishops and bishops on down to the local priest that's in the parish. And the priest is the intermediary between the people of God so that you cannot go to God without a priest. Well, you might say, well, how is that true? I mean, we all know that Roman Catholics pray all the time. They do. But to receive their salvation and to be accepted by God, they have to have sacraments that can only be administered by a priest. And so you have to have baptism from the church that comes at the hands of the priest. You must receive the body of Christ in the mass that's been consecrated by a priest. You must confess your sins to a priest. You must receive absolution of your sins from a priest. You must receive penance from a priest. You must be married in the church by a priest. You must be confirmed in the church through the instruction of a priest. And then when you die, it's not over because you have to receive the last rites from a priest. And you need... All of these things that only a priest can give. And who authorizes the priest? Well, he receives his authority 
from the Roman Catholic Church. And that's why Rome teaches that salvation is in the church. The church and the priest stand between you and God. And so simply stated, the priest is your salvation. That's sacerdotalism. No one can be saved without a priest who has to perform all of these variety of functions in order for you to get to God. And so what does that do? Well, it pushes Roman Catholicism outside the spectrum, completely outside the spectrum of New Testament Christianity. That becomes another gospel, as Paul called it in Galatians chapter 1. Now, that's one of the many reasons why that the Roman Catholic Church is not now, nor has it ever been, a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Antinocene period was the time of the growth of that system. And it wasn't fully formed by the time that this, this period was over, but all of the stuff that is there, it's all coming together, and it took a little while longer for it all to be concentrated into one huge conglomerate. But it was on the way. Now, I have other things that I want to talk to you about, uh, heresies during that time, that I don't have time to get in tonight. We're already just a minute or so after seven, and so we don't have time to do that. So we're going to come back next week, and we're going to look at some more of this. And one of the particular ones is baptismal regeneration. And, and that is the first error, uh, direct affront, the direct error on the doctrine of salvation itself, baptismal regeneration. So we're going to talk about that a little bit next week. And so I think it's important for us to see not only what the true church is doing and who, were the, who was the true church in that time, and we're going to talk about groups in that time as well, but not only them, but to find out what is it that they had to fight against and what was destroying uh, the, the Christian faith or attempts to destroy it at that time. What kind of false doctrines were entering in? So these are two of them. Ecclesiasticism that grew into the papal hierarchy, and sacerdotalism that puts the priest between the believer and God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the time that we've had tonight, and we just ask, Lord, that you'd help us to understand these things better. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have uh, given us the truth of your word, that you've given us a church where we can say these things and teach people uh, how all of this came about. Oh, we just thank you that you've given us the truth of your word. We, we praise your name for that. Bless us, Lord. Be with our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.